This is The Ascending Life with Pastor Josh Blevins of Grace Calvary Chapel. God is much more concerned about the authenticity and genuineness of your faith than he is about your security and comfort in this temporary place called earth. And God is not being mean when he puts you in a place where you have to allow him to rip idols out of your heart that are keeping you from experiencing the very, very best that he has for you. Do you think that God wants you to be happy? The answer is yes, but you may be surprised to know that it's not his main concern. In today's message, Pastor Josh drives home the point that God is more focused on the authenticity of your faith than he is on your happiness here on earth. Faith is a powerful thing that is needed to stand firm in what you believe, and it's what sets you apart from those of the world. It's what makes you a light on a hill for those who don't know Christ. Now, here's Pastor Josh in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, as he continues his message, Faith Declares Jesus is Better. If you would turn to Hebrews chapter 11, as we move through the journey of the faithful and learn what faith looks like, especially in these days as we apply God's word to our life, we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 today through 29, several examples of faith, starting with the father of faith, the friend of God, Abraham himself. As we continue this journey of faith, we have seen that faith Contrary to popular opinion in some theological circles today, is not our way of demanding God to accomplish our will, but it is actually the way in which we walk with an invisible God with invisible promises in a world that would like to tell us otherwise, to turn our path away from Christ. Faith actually keeps us on track with Christ despite the difficulties of life, despite the trials, despite the loss of things that we'd hoped for or maybe wanted in this world. Faith keeps us tethered to the unseen. It is the evidence of things unseen. It is that substance of the things that we hope for in Christ. And faith is that required element of the Christian life that pleases God in the way that we practically live. And so we're going to jump right in as we look at Abraham's test of faith by taking five more lessons about what true faith looks like. If you're taking notes, jot the first point down. And that verses 17 and 19 teach us that faith practices relentless obedience to God. Faith practices relentless obedience to God. Verse 17 again says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. This is an account of one of the most famous tests of faith in history. And it tells us an incredibly larger story than simply what happened on that mountain with Abraham and Isaac. Abraham's obedience in this event laid the framework for the very gospel, which we'll talk about in a moment. We find the story, and you don't need to turn there, in Genesis chapter 22, this account of the Old Testament story, 
And there Abraham receives a command from God. Now remember, this is the same God who said, Abraham, I am going to bless you and your descendants. Abraham, I am going to make you a great nation, outnumbering the stars in the heaven. Abraham, I am going to give you a son in your old age by your wife, Sarah. And all of these impossibilities, Abraham believed God and believed God and believed God. And finally, they were starting to come to pass. And so what does God say next? The same God who made all these promises, he says, Abraham, I want you to take that very promise I gave you and I want you to give it back to me permanently. Which in a human perspective, that very command of God saying, Abraham, sacrifice your son would technically mean an end to the very promises that God made. You follow me? In other words, it would have meant God brought me all the way up to this point. He's fulfilled all of these impossibilities only to take it all back, only to go back on his word. And when Abraham received the word from the Lord, notice several things regarding this moment of faith. First, notice that the Bible indicates here that Abraham was being tested You might want to jot that word down, that faith will always be put to the test. I know many of us would like to get out of that truth. God, can we just get out of life without being tested? Can we just not go through anything that really challenges us or tests us? And yet there is this need, this necessity almost, that faith that is not tested never becomes pure, never becomes strong never becomes what it needs to be. Now, when you initially read this story, some might initially say, they read the story of God telling Abraham to sacrifice his son. This seems a bit mean-spirited of God, as though God is playing some twisted trick, teasing Abraham, getting some sort of weird pleasure out of the agony Abraham must be feeling and going through as he's preparing to give away and sacrifice his own son to God. What kind of God would do such a thing? And yet this is the furthest thing from the truth of what's actually happening here. You see, God tested Abraham in his faith really because he trusted Abraham. He tested Abraham because the things that God was going to do through him would require Abraham to not have any sort of hindrances that would keep him from obedience to God. Abraham had to know that he would stop at nothing to obey the Lord. And let's not forget something about this entire event. True or false, God already knew the outcome when he told Abraham what to do. True. Now, Abraham didn't know the outcome. Abraham had to exercise faith in the outcome based on what God said. But God already knew that he was not only going to save Isaac and not require Isaac to be a sacrifice. God would never accept that but that this would now paint a picture of the gospel when Jesus Christ would willingly lay down his own life as the perfect sacrifice for sin. But here's the reality. We need to always remember that when God tests our faith, when he puts us in the pressure zone, so to speak, it's so that what comes out of that would lead us to a place of greater obedience and effectiveness for him. I'll put it like this. A great work of God requires great testing of the worker's faith. In order to walk with God, we must be willing, at God's command, to lay down things that matter to us because we trust 
that God has something better in store that we can't yet see. I think of Peter's words. Listen to this verse. Peter, knowing and speaking of trials and tribulations and testings that we would go through in life, said this in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you are grieved by various trials. Why? That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found a praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here's what faith teaches me. That there is something that God is far more concerned about than your earthly comfort. That might be news to some. God is much more concerned about the authenticity and genuineness of your faith than he is about your security and comfort in this temporary place called earth. And God is not being mean when he puts you in a place where you have to allow him to rip idols out of your heart that are keeping you from experiencing the very, very best that he has for you. That is not his unkindness. That is his love. That is his way as a father to bring us to a place of complete an absolute surrender. The second thing, not only that Abraham was tested and that true faith will always be tested, but number two, notice that Abraham was immediately obedient. God said, I want you to do this. Offer up your son Isaac. And in Genesis 22, verse 3, here's what we read. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey. He took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering, and he arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Here's what I want you to catch. When Abraham hears the word of God, he moves swiftly to obey the word of God. He doesn't sit around feeling sorry for himself. He doesn't sit around worried about what he might potentially lose. He doesn't procrastinate and make excuses about why maybe I'll do this next week. He hears God. And early, the very next morning, without hesitation, he responds by making preparations for the sacrifice and going by faith to the place that God had commanded him to. It's been said that delayed obedience to God is the same as disobedience to God. And the Bible supports that truth. Now, I want to say this. If the Lord hasn't spoken clearly, we are to wait patiently. We aren't to make rash, emotionally charged decisions about things in our life and then reap the consequences for it, we must have patience for God's guidance. But listen, believer, when God does speak, when he speaks either clearly through his word or through wisdom or by the Holy Spirit or through the confirmation of other believers, we must not give our flesh time to argue ourselves out of obedience to God. I don't know if this applies to anyone else But far too many times, I realize that that can be my tendency. If you give me enough time, I can rationalize and make excuses out of obedience to God when it's contrary to something I really want in my flesh. And that's why quick obedience is required. And it requires faith. Because you don't always know what the outcome will be when you say yes to the Lord. Think about it in these New Testament examples. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus looked at Simon's two brothers, these two brothers, Simon and Andrew, 
And in Matthew chapter 4, verse 19, he calls them from their trade. They're fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they immediately left their nets and followed him. There was an immediacy. Is that a word? Immediacy? No? Yes, I'm getting mixed. You don't know what it is either. There was an urgency to recognize this is not optional when the Lord says something and calls us. When Saul, who would become Paul the apostle, but was the persecutor of the church, when he was met by the risen Jesus on the road and called with the call of taking the gospel to the Gentiles, he was blinded, he was healed, he was filled with the Spirit. And in Acts chapter 9, verse 20, we read, immediately he preached Christ in the synagogues that he was the Son of God. Move forward in Acts chapter 16. Paul is on a missionary journey and him and his crew are determining what the Holy Spirit is leading them to do. And in Acts chapter 16, in verse 9 and 10, we read, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night, and a man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Are you noticing a trend here? Immediately, immediately, immediately. When we know God has spoken, obedience should be immediate. But here's something else to consider. Some of us are very zealous and quick to obey God. And then we obey God only to realize, what did I get myself into? This is really hard. Whoa, I wasn't expecting that roadblock. Wow, I wasn't expecting that left turn. And that's when faith is required not only to immediately obey God, but to persevere and endure in obeying God. That's another lesson that Abraham teaches us is that his obedience wasn't just an emotional response to, oh, okay, God said it, I'll do it. But when it gets hard, I'll follow through until God says go a different way or do a different thing. Why? Because he trusted in the nature of God. He trusted in the heart of God. He trusted in the promise of God. And notice that that leads me to my third observation of Abraham is that he was confident. Abraham was confident Notice it says in verse 17 again, he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called, listen, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. And what he's saying here is he gives Isaac the title only begotten son, which is interesting to me. If you know John 3.16, you could already see the correlations beginning to form. But here's the thing. When Abraham looked at Isaac, true or false, Abraham was a human being like you. Same thoughts, same fears, same failures, same concerns. He is leading his son up a mountain. And when he turns back and he looks at Isaac carrying the wood for the sacrifice, he says, that's it. If God's promises are going to be fulfilled, it's going to be right there in that young man. If the nation's going to happen, if the descendants are going to outnumber the stars, if God's, it's all right there. It's all right there in this sacrifice. And he didn't let his human logic stop him, even at that point, from being obedient to God. He was confident, and notice verse 19, concluding, 
that, I love this, that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. In other words, the whole time he's thinking, even if I have to go through and put the knife in my son's heart and offer him as a sacrifice, then as soon as I pull it out, God will cause him to come back to life. That is how faithful I believe God is to his promises. Has Abraham ever seen anyone raised from the dead? No. But he's starting to know the character of God. I've already seen God fulfill the impossible. I've already seen God break through my human understanding. I've already seen God do things that I laughed at him about. And there is no way God is going to fail now. And I love this word concluding. You might want to note that word concluding. It's an accounting term. It's a mathematical term, which means to make calculations or to compute. You know, a lot of times Christians are criticized of having blind faith. Oh, you guys just do stuff, you know, blindly. You just make these crazy decisions blindly. Blind faith, you can't see God. You don't. There is no blind faith for the Christian. I tell you, every single faith decision I made has been calculated. It's been thoughtful. It's been prepared for. But here's the difference between the world and the church. The difference between the world and the church is that the Christian puts God into their calculations. When God is in your calculations, nothing becomes impossible. It's not that we don't think. It's not that we have blind faith. It's simply that we believe in a God who makes all things possible. And when you put him in that equation, you're going to go for it. And you're going to do things that the world looks at you and go, what are you doing? That makes no sense. That doesn't make financial sense. That doesn't make sense for your family. That doesn't make, you know what? If God's in it, then he is the ultimate deciding factor in whether or not this is possible. And this is what he concluded. He computed, he calculated. For Abraham, he knew that God would be faithful to keep his promise even if that meant that God would raise his son from the dead. And finally, we see that Abraham, in a sense, was prophetic. Notice at the very end of that verse, in verse 19, 20, he says, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. In other words, though God stopped Abraham from offering Isaac as a sacrifice, the very fact that Abraham was willing to do that in his heart, God figuratively received that sacrifice the same way. In other words, Abraham's willingness to obey God by faith was the sacrifice that God accepted. God didn't want Isaac. God didn't want Abraham to human sacrifice of Abraham's son. No, God wanted faith. And isn't it interesting that God chose Abraham, the father of faith, to paint this picture with his son Isaac, of what would happen 2,000 years later. Consequently, on the same hill, think about that, you guys, on the same hill in the land of Moriah, God said to Abraham, go to the mountain, I will show you in Moriah. Moriah, 2,000 years later, was what? Jerusalem. And there in Jerusalem, outside the city gates, on a hill, shown by God, Calvary, Golgotha, just as Isaac carried the wood of the sacrifice up the hill, Jesus carried the burden of the cross up the hill. And when Isaac was about to be sacrificed, God stopped him and provided a sacrifice there caught in the thicket, a ram. And what did Abraham do? He named that mountain. He named that mountain on the hill or on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. For the Lord himself shall provide. And on that same mountain, 2,000 years later, 
Jesus willingly offered his own life as a perfect sacrifice for sins, that all who trusted by faith in that sacrifice would be justified before him. It's incredible. And so we learn that faith is relentlessly obedient to God. It's relentlessly obedient to God. Number two, we believe that here in verses 20 and 22 teaches us that faith believes God for the unknown future. Jot it down. Faith believes God for the unknown future. Verse 20 continues. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. Notice that's future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. Now, I'm going to lump these three examples all together because they all do with men who were declaring future things by faith, not yet seeing them. So let's move down this line of generations as we continue. Isaac, all right, you guys know Isaac, the promised son, the one that was led up the mountain to be sacrificed by Abraham is now an old man. He had two children that had an interesting sort of dynamic together. Any of you have two kids that are like the exact opposite of each other? It can get interesting at times, can't it? Well, needless to say, Jacob and Esau, Isaac's two children, had a conflicting relationship. Soon as Esau was born, his twin brother Jacob came out grabbing onto his heel and he basically maintained that character all the way through, which is why his name was Heel Catcher. It's, he was kind of a conniver. He was a bit of a manipulator, a bit of a deceiver. And yet, this story continues, and you know the story. Esau came in from hunting one day, and he was hangry, <laughs> hungry and angry. And you know what that does to a man? It makes him very irrational. And basically, Esau, Jacob finds an opportunity, says, hey, I'll make you your favorite stew if you want to give me your birthright. And of course, Esau's just thinking about his stomach and he's like, yeah, sure, whatever, I don't care. And Jacob remembers that. So when it comes time at the end of their father's life to bless their children, and that fatherly blessing was everything. It was declaring by faith that the future of their generations, of what their lives would consist of, it was that passing on, so to speak, of the torch. Jacob, the youngest, dresses up like his brother because his dad's now pretty much basically blind, can't see, puts hair on his chest, animal skin on his chest, kind of changes his voice up a little bit and um, brings a stew and tricks his father into giving him the blessing of the firstborn. Esau, by the time he finds out this has all happened, he realizes it's too late, begs his father and his father gives him a blessing as well. And here's what I see when I look at Isaac, the dad in this whole situation. Isaac got duped. He was deceived. He was tricked. His family, behind his back, made these conniving plans to get their way. And what does he do by faith? He pronounces blessing. What does that tell me? It tells me that Isaac was saying, even though this didn't happen the right way, God is still going to redeem it for the right purpose. Thanks for joining us for Pastor Josh's study in the book of Hebrews. Throughout this book, we learn about idol worship, 
This is when you place a person, people, or things in place of God. Although idol worship was prevalent during the time Hebrews was written, it's still in our world today. From TV to clothes to food to family, it's easy to put other things in place of God. We hope today's teaching has made you more aware of this and that you've been encouraged to seek God first. If you'd like more information about The Ascending Life or would like to hear other teachings from Pastor Josh, visit our website at theascendinglife.com. Once you're there, click on the Media tab and follow the link to our YouTube page. You can also subscribe to our podcast and have the latest message from The Ascending Life as soon as it's available. Feel free to download these messages and take them with you on the go. If you're on social media, find links on our website to our social media pages. We'd love to connect with you there. Like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram or Twitter to stay up to date with everything happening at The Ascending Life and Grace Calvary Chapel. Our website again is theascendinglife.com. If you're in or near the St. Joseph area, we'd be honored to have you join us at Grace Calvary Church for our weekly service. Find all the information you need at our website, theascendinglife.com. Well, that's it for now. But there's so much more to learn on the next edition of The Ascending Life. So be sure to tune in again. Reaching up, we're pressing.